My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors at Stonebridge, and uh, I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we look at God's Word together tonight. Um, every now and then, when I'm kind of trying to unwind, uh, watch television shows, one of the shows I stumble across on occasion is, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Antiques Roadshow. Anybody seen that thing? That's, it's the kind of show where, you know, basically you take your junk, your, your trinkets, your family heirlooms and treasures and whatever, and you bring them to these traveling appraisers in order to find out how valuable they are, what they're actually worth. Uh, sometimes people are pleasantly surprised. What they thought was just kind of grandma's old tea kettle happens to be this rare collectible. Sometimes they walk away disappointed. What they had thought was this unique treasure turns out to be a very common replica that 100,000 other people also have sitting in their homes and so on. Uh, because, of course, the value, when you're trying to figure out how much something like that's worth, the value is contingent, among other things, on the authenticity of the piece, on how real and genuine it is. Nobody's going to pay $100,000 for a Babe Ruth rookie card that was printed by the thousands in 1995. They want the 1916 edition, right? Or nobody's going to pay millions of dollars for a poster of a Van Gogh painting. They want the real Van Gogh. And if it's not that, it's not worth very much. So how do you authenticate something like that? Well, one way would be to talk to the artist or the manufacturer or the publisher, the, the maker of that object in question, which is obviously hard for older collectibles, but pretty doable for modern treasures. You know, if you want to know, is the Rolex I bought on the street corner in New York City a real Rolex or not? Bring it to Rolex, and they can tell you that, right? You bring it to the maker. Or, even better, if you want to be sure, buy it from Rolex, and then you'll know it's the genuine thing. And, and that was Paul's point last week in chapter 1 when he was talking about the authenticity of his gospel, the gospel that he preaches. He didn't receive it from any man, nor was he taught it. He got it from the maker, he got it through revelation of Jesus Christ from the author, the artist, the maker himself. And then he proceeded to kind of supply evidence for that from his personal story of, of how he got it uh, from God himself. When Christ revealed himself to him, he didn't run off to Jerusalem to talk to others and, and kind of figure out the story. Instead, he started preaching the gospel immediately. Paul did not make up the gospel or find it in a secondhand store. He got it from God, straight from the maker. But there's a second way to authenticate something if you're, you're trying to, to find out, is this thing real? And that is to bring it to the so-called experts, right? You bring it to the Antiques Roadshow or to whatever board of certifiers there is for whatever it is you collect. And that's kind of what Paul's doing in chapter 2 now. Uh, he, as he relates what happened on his second trip to Jerusalem, he takes the gospel he preaches and he sets it before the so-called experts, the apostles in the Jerusalem church. Not that he needs them to authenticate it, he knows where he got it from, but their certification 
will go a long way towards silencing his critics who claim that his gospel's a forgery or stolen goods. And, and so, and, and one of the central issues in this, this debate over the authenticity of Paul's gospel is the question of who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? Is it only for Jews so that to know God, you have to become Jewish, which is essentially what Paul's opponents have been saying and have been trying to convince the churches in Galatia? Or is the gospel for everyone, for Jew and Gentile alike, unbound by ethnicity, unrestricted by performance, free and full of grace for everyone who believes in Christ? How the Jerusalem apostles weigh in on that question will go a long way toward the fruitfulness of Paul's ministry among the predominantly Gentile churches like those in ancient Galatia. In fact, in this section of the book, he's introducing a lot of the major issues that he's going to be addressing throughout the remainder of the letter. And so, as he continues to back up his claim that the gospel he preaches is God's gospel, it didn't come from man, he didn't get it from anybody, he didn't make it up, it comes from God, he moves from providing evidence from his own personal history in chapter 1 to now providing evidence from a meeting in Jerusalem that happened 14 years after he met Christ. And he sets up the occasion of that meeting in the first couple of verses, identifying the main point of contention, whether or not the gospel is only for Jews or whether it's for everyone. And then meanwhile, through the course of this, he's going to expose a couple of the threats to that gospel that were fueling that contention, specifically the threats of legalism and partiality. And ultimately, he's going to show us that that he is unified with the apostles in Jerusalem. They preach the same gospel, and it is for everyone. It's unbound by ethnicity. It is unrestricted by performance. It is free and full of grace to everyone who believes. And so we'll start in verses 1 to 2 with the point of contention that Paul sought to clear up by going to Jerusalem a second time, which has direct implications for his ministry among the Galatians. And that is the question, is the gospel for Gentiles, for people of non-Jewish descent? So if you look again at verses 1 to 2, there are three things in these two verses that set up the issue at hand. Why he went, who he brought, and what he did when he got there. So first, why he went to Jerusalem. He says, I went up because of a revelation, verse 2. So he did not go up to Jerusalem because he had been summoned there by the authorities. He wasn't being sent to the principal's office to explain himself. He went because God told him to go. He went because of a revelation. He wasn't invited to some council like what happens in Acts 15. Instead, he went at God's direction. Now, Whether that revelation came to him privately or whether he's talking about uh, perhaps the prophecy of Agabus in Acts chapter 11 
We're not exactly sure. Um, I tend to think that what we read about, the event we read about in Galatians 2, happened during Acts 11, 27 to 30, when, when uh, there was a famine. Agabus, this, this prophet, had uh, prophesied a famine in the land, and then J- the Jerusalem church was hurting. And so the church in Antioch pulled together to send some relief, and they sent it by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. And so my best hunch is that this is probably happening during that trip. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that Paul was not in trouble. He was not being called to the principal. He was not being investigated or challenged. He went to Jerusalem because God sent him there. So that's the first thing, why he went. Second, who he brought. I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. But notice how he draws attention to the presence of Titus. He doesn't just say, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. He says, I went up with Barnabas, taking along Titus with me. He uses several extra words to draw attention to Titus. And then he does it again in verse 3, Titus, who was also with me. And then he tells us a little more about Titus in verse 3, namely that he was a Greek. He was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. That's important. Hold on to that. But then third, what he did when he got there. He says, I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. What is Paul's motive in setting before the the Jerusalem apostles the gospel that he's been preaching to Gentiles, to non-Jews? I mean, is he all of a sudden insecure after 14 years of preaching the gospel and now he's wondering, did I have it wrong? And so I need to go and check? Is that what he means by running in vain? I don't think so at all. Not after chapter 1. He's not at all worried about whether or not he has the gospel right. He received it straight from God. So is he, is he trying to kiss up to the apostles? Uh, you know, trying to impress them in order to win their endorsement of his ministry? Uh, hardly. I know there's no way. In fact, he's going to elaborate on this in a minute, but it, you can already see how Paul distances himself from the status of the apostles. Like, he doesn't name drop immediately. In fact, he barely even, almost hesitates to mention them. Those who seemed influential. That's as close as he can do to to actually saying who he's talking about there. Paul's not interested in winning anybody's approval. No, the potential emptiness or vanity that he's concerned about is not a question of the authenticity of his gospel, but rather of the effectiveness of his ministry among the Gentiles. If, as Paul contends, the gospel is for everyone, not just Jews, but people from all nations, but the Jerusalem apostles don't agree with that, that doesn't make Paul wrong, but it does make his ministry a lot harder. And it does give his opponents a lot more fuel to work with in their criticism. That's what Paul's seeking to understand. Where do the Jerusalem apostles stand on this question? And 
For us, being in Midwestern Iowa in the 21st century, it's kind of a, why is this even a question at all, right? I mean, they're not exactly, it's not a, a seemingly relevant question for us today. There are not a lot of Jewish immigrants who stopped in Iowa, and so we're not having this debate daily among ourselves, and so it just kind of feels irrelevant and foreign to even be worrying about something like this. But in the first century, this question was anything but irrelevant, Uh, because up to that point in history, God had been very clear that Israel was his chosen people, his covenant people, the descendants, the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the people that God promised to make into a great nation, the people he delivered from slavery, the people that he gave his law to so that he could rule them, the people he dwelt among through the tabernacle and the temple. And, and up to that point in history, membership in God's covenant people had been marked by what's called circumcision. So you can read about that in Genesis 17. The sign of the covenant that God gave to his people was circumcision, as as Phil Riken explains. It was the sacred mark of Jewish identity, the symbol of salvation, the visible sign of belonging to the people of God. And Doug Moo elaborates that for, for first century Jews, circumcision carried with it the larger obligation to submit to the law of Moses. And so if you want to know God, you have to become Jewish. That's how it worked up to that point. Then along comes Paul and says to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, to people who are not circumcised, if you want to know God, you simply have to trust in Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. He kept the law for you. All you need to do is be united with him by faith. That's the point of contention that's roiling through the, uh, the Galatian churches. And it's one that, that not just impacts the church in Jerusalem, where, where Paul's recounting this story, but the churches of Galatia and every church in every time and place. As one author summarizes, on the one side of the dispute We have Paul, who is saying the gospel of faith in Christ is for people of all cultures. And then on the other side, we have his opponents claiming not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christians must become Jewish. That's the point of contention. And so what do the apostles in Jerusalem think about that, that question? Before we look at the results of the meeting, I want to think a little bit more about some of the, about where the question came from, some of the threats underneath this contention that were driving it and fueling such a a contention that at this point in Paul's ministry threatened to undo the churches of Galatia. Like, what, what was really going on underneath the surface that brought them to that point? And, and Paul elaborates on two of those threats in verses 4 to 6, specifically partiality and legalism. Partiality and legalism. So first, the, the stumbling block of partiality, people-pleasing, in other words. 
Notice again how hesitant Paul is to draw any attention to the status of the apostles in Jerusalem. So there's a word that he uses four times in this passage to, uh, to talk about them. It's the word seemed. He uses it four times. They're the ones who seemed influential in verse 2. And then he uses it two times in verse 6, two more. And then finally in verse 9, where he actually names the people he's talking about, nine verses in, he finally tells you who he's talking about, James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars. And he just flat out says it in the middle of verse 6, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Paul is going out of his way to let his readers know that he is in no way interested in kissing up to or winning the approval of the apostles in Jerusalem, uh, which kind of feels strange because they were kind of a big deal. Like, they were the ones who had been leading the church up to that point. They were the ones who walked and talked with Jesus in the flesh. And Paul seems so kind of dismissive, and, and I don't think he's being disrespectful but he's been accused of people-pleasing already. He's mentioned that in verse 1 and in verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men? And he knows how tempting it is to want to win the approval of people or how easy it is to accuse somebody of people-pleasing. And he knows that that kind of partiality can so easily cause us to stumble and lose our grip on the gospel of Jesus. To hedge, to soften, to kind of change or amend the message in order to win the approval of people, which is actually something Paul will talk more about in the passage we'll look at next Sunday. But Paul Paul does not adjust his gospel based on who's listening or who he's trying to persuade. He might change the way he talks about it, but he doesn't change the message itself, not the content of it. He doesn't dress it up on the way to the roadshow, trying to kind of cover over the imperfections and emphasize the pretty parts so that he can pull a fast one on the appraisers. He's not appealing to the apostles because he needs their certification. Rather, he's trying to expose the, the false gospel of his opponents. And, and I think there's a good word for us there, a good warning for us in terms of the temptation to change the gospel for the sake of people-pleasing, for the sake of partiality. Because the good news of Jesus does not always sound like good news to the world around us. The fact that there is one God, that, our, that all of us are sinners and that sin separates us from that God and brings us under his just condemnation, that's not a popular subject today, right? And the fact that there's nothing we can do to fix it. Like there's nothing you and I can do to get us out of that problem, to make it up to that God. We are left to ourselves hopeless, but we're not left to ourselves, are we? We're not left to ourselves. The only hope is to turn in faith and repentance to Christ, who not only kept the law for us, but took the curse 
for us on the cross. And, and that is not a popular message today. As much as we want to kind of win a hearing with the world, you can be as nuanced as possible and you're still going to be looked at like a crazy person at the time. And, and so we may feel the need to win the approval, not even just of the world, but sometimes of other people in the church. And, and so we, we feel this temptation to change the message. Maybe it just, it's too, it's too restrictive. It's too narrow and exclusive to the people we're trying to persuade. And so we decide to loosen it up a little bit broaden it out a little bit. Or it's too broad and inclusive. It's too free and easy. And so we decide to tighten the reins a little bit, make sure they know we're serious and so on. All in the name of reaching people for Christ. But here's the deal. If we tamper with the gospel in effort to win the approval of people, we may win their approval, but we will not have won them to the gospel. We will not have won them to the gospel. And that is what's at stake. We, basically what happens, we're simply making much of them so that they'll make much of us, which actually threatens to shut them out of the kingdom. So Paul talks about in chapter 4. And so here's, here's a little test for us. When I'm talking about the gospel or sharing the gospel, here's a question to ask myself. Whose criticism am I most afraid of right now in what I'm saying? And am I allowing that to cause me to change the message? Beware the stumbling block of partiality in preaching the gospel. So that's the first threat that's kind of underneath all of this. The second threat that Paul exposes here is the slavery of legalism. The slavery of legalism. So demanding that someone become Jewish, you know, accept circumcision, keep the law, or that somebody um, keep some other law that we kind of substitute for Israel's law, go to church, say your prayers, do more good things than bad things, vote this way or that way. Demanding that we do something like that in order to know God is not just a difference of opinion, something that we can just, you know, agree to disagree on. It is a different gospel. It is a different gospel altogether designed to control and enslave the body of Christ rather than free it for true worship. And this is what the Galatians were facing. This is what Paul was up against in his trip to Jerusalem during that second visit. If you look again at verse 4, he says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. These false brothers who are preaching that in order to know God, you can't just have Jesus. It's Jesus plus the law. What's the ultimate end game? They're trying to spy out our freedom to enslave us, to, to bring us back into slavery. So legalism always results in slavery. Legalism always results in slavery because first, it buries us under a law that others use to control us. 
you're not doing enough. You're not doing it right. If you want to be accepted, you have to do this. And then, because it, it binds us to a law that we're incapable of keeping. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing it right. I'm never going to be accepted because I can't do this. Slavery, legalism always results in slavery. Always. It replaces faith with performance and rules us through fear, shame, and insecurity rather than love, acceptance, and grace. And Paul will have none of that. Not even for a moment will he tolerate such nonsense. Jesus is so much better. And so he says in verse 5, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is an unyielding faith in the gospel. He was not going to give an inch of territory to legalism. And notice the last word of that sentence in verse 5, you, as in you Galatians, what Paul did in Jerusalem in refusing to yield to the slavery of legalism, he did for the benefit not just of the people in that room, but for the benefit of the Galatians and the benefit of Christians everywhere. Everywhere. Because think about what had happened. Had he yielded his faith in that moment, had he yielded to that pressure to people please or, or to succumb to the slavery of legalism, what, what would have happened to the gospel for the Gentiles in that moment? It would have been gone. It would have been gone. We wouldn't be here preaching this word, right? And if we yield the gospel today and replace it with performance, what will, be, what will become of the freedom we have in Christ what will be the impact on future generations? Freedom to know God and enter his presence with our chin held high because we are his beloved son or daughter, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That kind of freedom. Freedom to love God with joyful obedience and to share that love with others. What would happen to that freedom if we yield the gospel to something else. Legalism replaces the gospel with performance. People-pleasing changes the gospel to impress. Paul resists both, and he would have us do the same, because the gospel of Jesus is free and full of grace. And so what finally do those apostles in Jerusalem think about what Paul's teaching? About this question, who is the gospel for? That's what Paul wants to find out. Are they going to agree with Paul and, and cut out the legs from under his accusers? Or are they going to tolerate or accommodate the false teachers, which doesn't void the truth of the gospel, but it makes Paul's ministry a whole lot harder? Well, to find out, Paul has done two things. Back to verses 1 and 2. First, he brings with him a Gentile Christian to a meeting 
with the Jewish apostles in Jerusalem. He brings a Gentile Christian with them. That's the first thing. And second, he sets before them the gospel he preaches. He lays it out for their examination. How will they respond? Well, no doubt to his joy and relief and to the health of the church everywhere in every place and time, both Titus and Paul's message are accepted as is. As is. Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. The apostles in Jerusalem did not require Titus to be circumcised in order to treat him as a Christian. That's a huge, huge statement on who the gospel's for, right? And then second, verse 6, those who seemed influential added nothing to me. That is, they added nothing to my message, to the gospel that I'm preaching. They didn't correct it or amend it or, or add circumcision or works of the law to it. Rather, they authenticated it. They endorsed the authenticity of what Paul was preaching. They were unified with Paul in his gospel message and in the scope of that gospel that it is in fact for everyone, unbound by ethnicity, unrestricted by performance, free and full of grace to everyone who believes in Jesus. And, and you see that unity, that joyful unity, unpacked in verses 7 to 10, this confidence in the unity of the gospel that it is for everyone. So again, rather than correcting or amending what Paul was saying, they, they recognized his apostleship, his ministry to the Gentiles. They saw it in parallel to Peter's ministry to the Jews. They, they recognized that the one who worked uh, through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through Paul for his apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. They recognized the grace that God had, had given them, had given Paul in verse 9, that, that his ministry was not something he made up or came up with on his own. It, was, it, it, it came from God's grace, and it was empowered by God's grace. And so, verse 9, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They recognize their unity in the gospel. Their unity in the gospel. Their only request to Paul was that he simply not forget the poor, which is almost certainly a reference to the poor in Jerusalem that, that had been impacted by that famine and that were, you read several times in the New Testament how the saints are taking up a collection for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. Um, that's most likely what he's talking about. And Paul's frank, Paul says, frankly, you didn't even need to say anything because I was eager to do that anyway. Because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And because the gospel makes us generous. That's one of the impacts it has on us. Care for the poor is, is one of its m the most basic responses, right? If God has been so generous to us, to lavish his grace upon us, despite the fact that we deserve the opposite, who are we to withhold our generosity to brothers and sisters in need? The gospel makes us generous 
people. And we've seen that this year in the generosity that so many of you have shown uh, in the midst of COVID and derecho relief. It's a beautiful thing. Let's keep it up. But the gospel makes us generous because it flows from the generosity of God. It is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for Jews. Christ is the fulfillment of Israel's law. He's the goal of the promises, all of the promises for God's people Israel. Find their yes in Jesus. He's the rightful heir to David's throne. And now that God has kept his promise in sending Christ, there is no faithfulness to the covenant at Sinai apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And that's super important. Paul's going to unpack that throughout this book, but it's essential to recognize the gospel doesn't replace Judaism. It fulfills it. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. The gospel is for Jews, and the gospel is for Gentiles. Christ has kept the law for all of us, for all of us. He has borne the curse for every single One of us. We, as Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, he says, We who were once far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both Jew and Gentile one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's made us one. We are one in Christ. And again, Paul's going to unpack that more as the book unfolds. The fact that our justification, our acceptance before God is not from works of the law, but faith in Jesus Christ. Which means, if the gospel is for Jews and the gospel is for Gentiles, the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. Whoever you are, wherever you are, God is not waiting for you to impress him. Even less is he waiting for any of us to try and impress one another. That's not the gospel. There's no partiality with God. He's not looking at your heritage. He's not looking at your background or your skin color or your culture or ethnicity. He's not waiting for you to step up your performance, prove to him that you're serious, that you really mean it, start succeeding at religion. Nor is he... You know, sometimes when you're new to church, it's easy to think that, that that's what's expected, right? I got I to gotta make sure I fit in. I got to make sure it's fake it till you make it, right? And, and you just kind of got to get it done and make sure you look good and put on the show. And sometimes when you grow up in church, you think the same thing, that this is all just a show and I've got to somehow convince God that I'm serious about him. And if I can't convince him or please him, at least maybe I can convince some of you. That's not the gospel. That's not the freedom that comes from grace. That's slavery. That's the slavery of legalism. The gospel sets us free from that because Jesus sets us free from that. We just praised God for for what he said in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus sets us free and makes us his own, not because we deserve it, but entirely by his grace, entirely by his grace. And that grace is for 
everyone, no matter how bad you've messed up, no matter how bad you continue to mess up, no matter how deeply you've been wounded or hurt, no matter how good you think you still are, we all need grace. Knowing God is all a matter of grace. It's what the non-Christian needs, and it's what the Christian needs just as much. The grace of God for every step of our faith. And it's what Jesus alone can offer to us. It's what Christ alone can offer. The gospel is for you. For you Christian, for you non-Christian, for you new Christian, for you seasoned saint. The gospel is for you because God's grace is for you. It is unbound by heritage. It is unrestrained by your performance. It is free and full of grace through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our undying need for the gospel. Lord, as we think about all that threatens to distract us or to uh, turn our gaze away from you, the, the, the stumbling block of, of people-pleasing, the slavery of legalism, God, don't let us yield for a moment. Let us hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Let us hold fast to Christ in all his beauty, in all his holiness, in all his mercy and grace. Lord, thank you for the sufficiency of Christ. And may we, may we be fully, deeply convinced that the grace of the gospel is not just theory. It is for me. It is personal, it is true, it changes everything. God, let us see that, that your grace is for us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.